Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including gathering times and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Brian Candelo. Good morning, church. Good to see you here this morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm excited to be here. Are you excited to be here this morning? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Okay. I can sense that in the room. In 2017, a new reality show came on the scene, and it was called Hunted. Didn't last very long, but it focused on nine teams of two as they became fugitives on the run. The premise was this. These These teams of two would try to use their wits to evade capture for 28 days in a 100,000 square mile area of the southeastern United States, and they were vying for the grand prize of $250,000. And the deal was this, though, that retired FBI agents and U.S. Marshals would be relentlessly pursuing them every step of the way. They'd be checking everything on the digital record. They had this command center. They were talking to family and friends, anybody that they knew. They were dogging their steps relentlessly. And so for 28 days, these teams were looking over their shoulder and trying to escape. Sounds fun, right? (laughs) Just out of curiosity, how many of you would sign up for something like that and think that's, yep, seven of us in the room. <laughs> and, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, because we need more stress in our lives. So we need something along those lines. We're familiar with our own examples of relentless pursuit. And usually those examples are negative. Telemarketers relentlessly pursuing you. Remember that one time 10 years ago when you clicked on your computer, I'd like more information and they've sent you an email every day since then? Right. That's relentless pursuit. If you have toddlers and they're thirsty, relentless pursuit. Or maybe one of the biggest examples I've experienced in my life is teenagers who want their first cell phone, relentlessly pursuing you for that. And these things, they tend to drain us, they wear us down. But the greatest example of relentless pursuit in the history of the world is actually for our good. And that's what we're going to talk about this this morning, the the relentless pursuit that shapes our lives and secures our identities, that doesn't drain us but gives us life. And so if there's an idea we want to latch onto today, it's just this, that God relentlessly pursues us with his redeeming love. God relentlessly pursues us with his redeeming love, that his goodness is running after us. And so I hope we can kind of latch on to that here this morning. We're kicking off a new series. We're going to be in the book of Hosea. And so we read in the Old Testament that God chose to bless all of creation. He chose to reveal himself and bless creation, specifically through one person initially, and then through a specific group of people, the people of Israel. And so we can trace God's hand. We can trace his revelation, we can trace his blessing through them. But the more we read the Old Testament, the more we see this circular pattern happening among these people. They begin under the blessing of God. They have God's blessing. And then after a while, they begin to kind of drift into sin. They begin to drift into rebellion, and then they suffer oppression and hardship, and they're far away from this blessing where they started. 
And after a while, this isn't right, and they, they want to do something about it, and they realize this isn't what they were created for. So they cry out to God, and they repent, and God hears that cry, and he sends rescue to them, and then they get back here. But we continue to see the circular pattern. This song is stuck on repeat for much of the Old Testament. Now, God's messengers throughout this circular pattern are prophets, Prophets came and reminded the people of the blessings of obedience and the consequences of disobedience. They instructed them for the present time. They informed them for the future. And Hosea is one of those prophets. Hosea is a prophet that comes along at some point in this circular pattern. And the nation at this season was experiencing relative prosperity, which means that they were more reliant upon their wealth and possessions and less reliant upon God and his commands. And when that is the case, that usually leads to this drift, this circular pattern away. And so Hosea is imploring the nation to return to God. And so we're going to focus on three things here this morning. We're going to look at Hosea's story. We have a very clear story of Hosea in the beginning of this book. We're also going to look at our stories because this is written to others, but it's familiar to us. It's spoken to others and it speaks to us. So we'll look at Hosea's story and then our stories. And then we want to look at the hope in every story that God relentlessly pursues us with his redeeming love. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hosea chapter one. You can go there. You can use your phone whatever you can do to read this scripture. The book of Hosea is largely poetic, but it does begin with the narrative section. And before we jump into that narrative section, I just want to give us a couple reminders to this. Sometimes I think we can read these Old Testament stories from a distance, as if they were some type of fable. I just want to remind us that these are real people in real situations in a real time and place who have real feelings and emotions. And so when we read this, let's not get too detached from that. I also want to let you know that this is a tough story. This is a tough story. And maybe this story has been avoided because of its stark imagery. But it's a stark image for a significant issue. It's a graphic image for a grim reality. And I just want you to know that as we head into this story. So Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 2. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, let's pause there real quick. God is beginning to speak to Israel through this guy named Hosea. Hosea, is he just graduated Reach Training Institute, Northern Kingdom campus, and he's super excited. And he's like, okay, God, I'm your guy, and you're calling me into ministry. Okay, you just tell me what you want me to do, and here we go. And so then God says to him, go and marry a prostitute. Yep, already, here we go. So that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. Now let's pause there for just a second. God says, go marry a prostitute. Right out of the gate, Hosea, you ready for ministry? Go marry a prostitute. And this is a gut check moment for Hosea. And I don't know what that scene looked like, but I'm imagining that he was like, oh, God, wait, you know, we must have a bad connection because it sounded like you said, go marry a prostitute, but you had to like go carry a proper suit, right? Because you're going to do a lot of ministry. So I'm going to guess that that's what you're saying, but that's not what he was saying. And prostitution is, is complicated. We know that. 
Sometimes it can mean being trafficked. Sometimes it can be driven by poverty. Sometimes it's choice. But in this story, we need to understand that, that Gomer's not being trafficked. And she is being provided for. And so there is a choice involved in this. Gomer was the representation of this nation, of these people who were disloyal and were pursuing other lovers. They were trapped in idolatry. And so God comes along and he asks Hosea to live his life as an object lesson. I want you to live your life as an illustration Sometimes it's difficult for us to understand kind of the big macro stories. When there's stories with just millions of nameless people, they rarely stir us. They rarely move us. But we need a specific story of a specific person that speaks to a specific truth. And those tend to move us. But as I was reading this, I was like, why couldn't God just have come along and been like, I'm going to show the nation what a life looks like that's truly blessed by me. I want you to live out this illustration of what absolute peace and safety and security and prosperity looks like. Sign me up for that story. Um, this isn't that story. This isn't what God was asking of him. Let's keep reading the story. Hosea marries Gomer and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. And the Lord said, name the child Jezreel. For I'm about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in the Jezreel Valley. Whew. That's tough. Now, there is some speculation that this firstborn child was his biological child, but the next two that we're going to read about weren't even his biological children. And you can kind of read that through some of this story. And, but what was Hosea thinking? And did he know? And did he ask the same kinds of questions? Soon Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, name your daughter Lo-Ruhamah, not loved, for I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them. After Gomer had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she said, or she again became pregnant and gave birth to a second son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, not my people, for Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. Names are significant. My wife and I obsessed over naming our children because we knew that a name is not something that is just spoken to someone. We believe that it's something that is spoken over someone for the entirety of their lives. And so we wanted the names to be meaning and we wanted the names to be speaking blessing over our children. Names are important. They're good. These are bad. These aren't great names. Don't find these in a baby book. Don't follow this example. Jezreel, honestly, is a city that played a tragic role in the history of the nation. Some horrific stuff happened in Jezreel that we won't go into. And as I was reading about it, I read one commentator who said, it would be like a Jewish person in present day naming their child after a concentration camp so that every time their name was spoken, it would bring up the horrors of the past. Good for that kid, right? And then the daughter comes along and she's named not loved disliked. It's symbolic of this, this breach of covenant that was happening, this idolatry of the people of Israel as they drifted away, as they created a separation, as they cut themselves off from God, as they refused to repent and receive forgiveness. And then the son comes along, the third child, and his name is, is not my people. 
And this is just symbolic of this progressive slide that ends in self-destruction. And the destruction was inevitable because the people were rejecting God. And so his kids were also living this object lesson and living into this. And what must it have been like for them? What must it have been like for their immediate community? Because every time one of those kids were called in the marketplace, heads would turn. Or every time a teacher was reading the names of roll call in class, or any time one of the little neighborhood kids said, hey, can I go over and play with Jezreel? And the mom was like, ooh. It would be this reminder of past and present idolatry. It would be a reminder of the nation's sin. It would be a reminder of God's stance against rebellion. And we don't know when exactly in this story it happened, but Gomer leaves. She leaves Hosea. She, she chases after other lovers. She chases after other things. And we can kind of stand back at a distance and see this and be like, yeah, I, I see the picture that you're painting, God. But let's not forget the human component of this story. Hosea is dealing with a nation in crisis, but he's also dealing with a home in conflict. He's this significant prophet, and now he's this single parent, and his heart's breaking, and he's hurting, and he's wondering how he's going to raise the kids, and all of this is stirring up inside him, and this is tough. He's grieving, and it's indicative of the heart of God that grieves when we chase after other things. You see, this is Hosea's story, and it's a tough story, but let's talk about our stories. Let's figure out where our stories fit. Oftentimes when we read scripture, we try and find ourselves in the story. I don't know if you do this, but I always try and place myself in the narrative somewhere. How would I have responded to this? And when I put myself into the narrative, it's usually as the hero, by the way, (laughs) right? I want to be Joseph or Moses. Maybe you want to be Esther, all of those great things, but not this time. I don't want any part of this story. This story makes me uncomfortable. It makes me want to hide. It makes me want to not pray too much because I'm afraid God's going to ask me to live out this difficult illustration. So who would we be in this story? Who are we in this story? We're not Hosea because Hosea is the personification of God's relentless pursuit. And we're going to see that more as we continue on. And we're, we're not the kids, thankfully, The reality is that we have the most in common with Gomer. And this makes me uncomfortable as well. It'd be easy for us to judge Gomer, to put a little bit of distance between us and her, to talk about her wayward ways. But let's not forget that this is our story as well. That we as a people have a tendency to drift away from God and chase other things, easier things, selfish things, newer things, material things. We have a tendency to drift towards idolatry. And idols always have a cost. Idols always exact a price from us. And usually later on in the story, it's usually due after the fact. And we can see in scripture in chapter 2, verse 5, that Gomer was chasing different things. It said she sold herself to other lovers for food, drink, clothing, olive oil, necessities of life, material things, possessions, a few luxury things. Olive oil is symbolic of, of joy and health and richness. And we know that Gomer was symbolic of the nation. And so what was the nation chasing? 
Well, we know that they were chasing safety. They were chasing security. They were chasing wealth. But they were doing so chasing it with foreign nations and false gods. They were trusting in the military might of other nations. They were trusting in the policies of other nations. And they were also leaning in and worshiping their gods, too, because why not just hedge your bets? If it works for them, it might work for us as well. And they're in charge in a lot of ways. So one commentator I read said this. He said, politics and diplomacy, all external matters, had become the national god, powerless to save, but powerful to ruin. And in many ways, true for them and true for us. We feel like, oh, if we just had the right policies, if we could just create the right systems, then this will give us everything we want. They were chasing as a nation this false narrative. They were chasing this lover. They were chasing this nation that they thought, man, if we just lean into them, then wealth and safety and security will be ours. This idea that those things are better found walking with man than walking with God. They were a nation that was comfortable. And then they became complacent. And in their comfort and complacency, they began to lose the fear of God. And that happens with us as well. We see that as their story. We read that as their story. But what about our own story? What about us? What are we chasing? What is our idolatry? Because like Gomer, we consistently look to other things rather than God to satisfy us. We think money or position or power or possessions are the things that will bring us safety and security. And so we chase after them. And this seems cliche, and we talk about this a lot. But if we're honest, humanity is cliche. We are all a little bit cliche. This is a story that is again and again told and retold throughout the history of mankind because that's what we do. We go to other sources for the things that in their purest form come only from God. And in our lives, there's many things that lead to this idolatry. There's many things that lead us away. And maybe it's hardship in our lives. Maybe it's just tough and we're like, God, I'm trying to follow you and this is tough, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look elsewhere. Or it's just lack of trust. God, you're not going to provide for me on a level that I need to be provided for, and so I'm going to chase other things. Or maybe we just let bad things hang around for too long and they begin to work their way into the fabric of our lives. Or maybe we just continually choose the immediate over the ultimate, but the end result is the same. It's this separation from God. And we can see it in this story of Hosea and Gomer, and we need to process this in our own stories, and we need to ask these questions of ourselves. What am I chasing? What are the idols in my life? We need to think through these things. And if you can't really kind of put your finger on what the idol is in your life, ask somebody close to you. Ask your spouse. They'll definitely know. They'll be able to tell you right away. And then we need to spend some time in repentance and receiving forgiveness. We need to figure these things out in our own story so that we don't drift away, so that we don't chase other things. Now, God, in his goodness, helps out with this issue. And it doesn't always seem great to us, but there's this beautiful principle that we see in chapter 2. The verse right after it says that Gomer went off and chased these other things. It has this beautiful God moment. 
God says, for this reason, I will fence her in with thorn bushes. I will block her path with a wall to make her lose her way. When she turns after her lovers, she won't be able to catch them. She will search for them, but not find them. I love that. God, in his grace, hinders the paths that lead away from him. God, in his grace, puts up thorn bushes and walls on the paths that lead away from him. Now, we know that not every thorn bush, not every wall comes from God, but we need to process sometimes what they are because they keep us from harm. That's the kind of God that we have. And parents, you know the same thing. You do it all the time with your kids, right? You're always, you're the thorn bush. You're the wall. You're always keeping them from trouble, especially when they're little. I have two amazing daughters. My youngest daughter is delightful, but when she was little, her nickname was Destructo Baby. (laughs) She just got into everything. We had to take a bungee cord and strap the kitchen chairs together on the bottom because she would pull a chair out, get up on the chair, get up on the table, and hang from the lamp like it was a jungle gym. And it only takes once, right, coming around the corner and seeing her smiling at you hanging onto the lamp to be like, okay, put the wall up, put the bungee cord out. This is what we do. And sometimes there's punishment associated with that. Sometimes there has to be discipline with those things. But here's the thing. God does the same thing, but he takes no delight in punishment. God's discipline is not destructive, it's restorative. His discipline isn't destructive. It's not about retribution or retaliation, but about repentance and restoration. That's who God is. That's the hope in our story. That's the hope in every story. That God relentlessly pursues us with his redeeming love. We see that in the story of Hosea. Chapter 3, verse 1. It kind of turns into this first person narrative. Then the Lord said to me, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. God says, go. She's hurt your heart. She's humiliated you, maybe. She's made you angry, maybe. Other people have talked about this situation. It's been super difficult for you. You've grieved. Go. Go, he says, because this will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. At some point, it seems that Gomer had sold herself into slavery, and and so Hosea pursues her and redeems her, and there's a legal transaction that results in the reconciliation of this relationship. The innocent party paid the price, and this would be the second time that a bride price was paid, and we can stand back again and be like, wait, 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 enough is enough. Why pay for something that is such a source of of disappointment. Why pay for unfaithfulness? Why pursue something that cannot be trusted? God, why would you do that? You see, this is who God is. This is how God loves us. God relentlessly, lovingly, sacrificially, fiercely pursues us with his redeeming love. He rescues us at our own expense, at his own expense, excuse me. Tim Keller says this. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. 
Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Gomer was not purchased to be punished. She was redeemed to be restored. She was freed to be family. This is the best part of the story. This is the part of the story that we celebrate. This is why we love these kinds of stories. We love Schindler's List or It's a Wonderful Life or Groundhog Day, Return of the Jedi, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. We love these stories with these redemption moments. We love the stories where somebody's life gets turned around, where somebody gets chased and pursued and they have hope in their story. God comes to us in our troubles. One of the verses as I read through this passage again and again that I just could not get away from is uh, chapter 2, verse 15, and God says this, I will transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. God's relentless pursuit of us transforms our valleys of trouble into gateways of hope. Now, maybe the translation you're reading says, transform the valley of Achor, and that's what it means literally. You see, when Israel was entering the promised land, the valley of Achor was the very first valley that they came to. It was their first footsteps into the promised land. It was the place where manna stopped and they began to live off the land. It was everything that God promised. And yet the initial valley that they came into turned into a valley of trouble. It turned into a valley of selfish desire, of coveting, of hidden secrets, of defeat. If you're familiar of the Old Testament story of Achan, you read about how one man took it upon himself to take things and disobey and hide things, and then the nation was defeated. And so the promised land became a valley of trouble. You see, our valley of trouble is the result of our own actions because we have chased after false gods. But our gateway to hope is because of the actions of Jesus, and he is chasing us. He relentlessly pursues and redeems. He meets us as we sit in our valley of trouble. In our valleys, there's always hope, and the gateway of hope exists because Jesus paid the price. The same way that Hosea paid the price, because Jesus paid the price and he invites us to himself, even in our rebellion. And we see this turn happen right after this in chapter 2. He says, I will show love to those I called not loved. And to those I called not my people, I will say, now you are my people. And they will reply, you are our God. Good news to kids with bad names. This turn, God relentlessly pursues us with his redeeming love in the messiness of our lives, in our valley of trouble, in our rebellion, he offers this gateway of hope. He doesn't care about our opinion of him. He pursues us. He knocks on our door. He lights up our phone screen. In the joys, in the sorrow, no matter what season of life, in the order, in the chaos, when we're running away and not towards, he relentlessly pursues us. And I know we have this filter, this lens that always happens when you hear about a God who loves us relentlessly. You always think, yeah, but that's for other people. That's not for me. You don't know what I've done. That's for other people. But church family, I would love for you to hear this. You were not purchased to be punished. You were redeemed to be restored, and you were freed to be family. 
We're going to enter back into worship. And I would love if you would just hang on to that thought that God is relentlessly pursuing you with his redeeming love, that this would be a behold moment, that you would enter into worship knowing that God loves you recklessly. And as we behold this, then that can begin to change our belief and that can begin to stir our behavior. Jesus, as we enter into this time of worship, would you speak your love over this place? Would we be recipients of that? Would we rest in that? In your name. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.